0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot
1: Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We've got a really cool episode today. We're talking to Ronan Farrow, who obviously you know from all of his reporting on harvey Weinstein and uh the me too movement and and so on and so forth but he's got a he's got a book out about a very different topic about the decline of diplomacy in the United states and and the gutting of the state department not just not just what we've seen in the last year or so under President Trump, but something that really goes back decades and and has been is something that has gone on during Republican and Democratic administrations. So we're going to talk to Rowan, Ronan, sorry, about that book, and also we're going to get into some of the Me Too reporting and other things that he's working on. Because, you know, he he has also uh, been reporting on uh, the secret payments that were made on behalf of, of President Trump at the end of the the 2016 campaign. So we're going to talk about all of that.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to hear him talk about just his process. I just was kind of curious about how he's juggling all these massive stories.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he just—you know—the fact that he just won a Pulitzer Prize is almost sort of like a <laughs> a, a, a a throwaway line right. in our in our in our conversation. That's with right. Him. So before we get to that, I want to tell you one thing. Calling all cold brew fans, spring has finally sprung, so it's time to switch from hot coffee to Grady's cold brew, the most refreshing pick-me-up around. Our famous blend uses 100% Arabica beans from Indonesia and Ethiopia with just a hint of French chicory for the smoothest, richest, most indulgent iced coffee experience, all delivered to your door at a fraction of what it costs from the coffee shop. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. So, all right, we've, we've talked about Grady's cold brew. Which you know is, we which, love it. Yeah, which is which is the fuel that, that powers this podcast <laughs> and, and the entire... Ain't that the truth. Yeah, the entire TPM yeah. empire. It's it's true, like like everybody in the office is drinking this stuff. You know, yeah.
2: the, the saying goes, America runs on Dunkin'. I think yeah, you could TPM say TPM, TPM not... runs on Grady's. Yeah,
1: totally, totally, totally. Um, okay, so let's talk to Ronan Farrow. All right. Welcome to the Josh Marshall podcast. It's a Thanks for coming to be in. here. Thanks, Josh. And uh, so the book is "War on Peace: The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence." Now, uh, most of, well, our, our listeners are probably familiar with various things about you over the last twenty-five years, but particularly over the last year, kind of lose track of how long it's been since we've been in this Me Too. I guess it's only seven or eight September months.
0: September of last fall. Is when yeah, we ran so the it's first not. Stories. Yeah,
1: not even a year. So, um, and you, you just won a Pulitzer Prize, or I guess co won mm-hmm. a Pulitzer Prize with with the with the, Excellent with the people Times from Reporters. the Times, yep. right? So, uh, people know that work uh, most specifically, but this book builds on what you were doing for the better part of the the first part of this decade. So first of all, just tell us, what is this book about? America is undergoing a transformation in
0: the way it relates to the rest of the world. And right now, we're in a moment of particular crisis in this respect. We are gutting our diplomatic capacity. We have fewer negotiators and peacemakers, and more and more of American foreign policy is being run out of the Pentagon and the CIA. And it's having a really tangible effect in how we do business around the world. we're becoming a nation that shoots first and asks questions later or maybe never in some right, cases
1: right so you just uh, I, I guess it's the current issue of The New Yorker where it, which is your your main uh, writing outlet now mm-hmm. uh, there's an excerpt of this book where it talks about uh, Rex Tillerson, who obviously. I guess God is that a month. I, this is one of the things time about lies. the Trump era. Uh, it, a, it, a, there's a, a lot of time dilation. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a brief and yeah, it's like Inception in there. Yeah, like, exactly, exactly. Rex Tillerson was only in there for a couple of minutes, but it felt yes, like a year. It, exactly, exactly. So, so he's out, and 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 that article is basically uh, a an interview with him, but a lot of sort of drama and color around the interview which was very telling about his whole time there and everything. Now, what what interested me about that is that on the one hand, you have President Trump coming in and wants to upend all sorts of things about, about the American Republic, wants to cut a lot of places and stuff like that. At the same time, you seem to have uh, Tillerson who even though one might have imagined he was going to be like a kind of like a Jim Baker establishment sort of,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, oil diplomacy kind of guy, had added a whole other layer of just, we don't need these diplomats, let's just get rid of ever. So let's start with just Tillerson, and but recognizing that Tillerson is only sort of the the most extreme and recent phase of what you're talking about. But tell us about his time, his year at the State Department.
0: It was a brief and chaotic tenure. And I think he realized late in the game just how disastrous uh, what he was presiding over was. He's more candid in this book than he really ever has been before on the record. And one of the things he does very clearly is he places blame squarely on the White House, You know, he says that they were... And these interviews
1: were pre-firing, right?
0: Immediately pre-firing. Okay, right. And, uh, you know, he kind of lets loose. He says that the White House was uh, cumbersome and difficult to deal with and defied his demands to fill uh, this growing, uh, you know, panoply of unfilled positions around the State Department. Um, You know, he sounded very acrimonious about it. And then on top of that... We talked, frankly, about White House machinations to oust him, which at that point he was still denying would lead to his demise. But he was already saying very clearly and kind of ominously, I know who's behind these leaks. I know it. And, you know, all the sources I talked to around him said very clearly that that was Jared Kushner and one other senior official um, and it seems that whoever was behind know who that it, other
1: worked. senior official is? Cause I, in the, in the, maybe I missed it. it okay. So the Kushner we, don't, we thing don't know the, who that, yeah, the Kushner, yeah, the Kushner thing Kushner's was the big out headline there. out of that. Right, 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 right. Like, okay, yeah. right. Okay. Well, when, when, when we're done taping, <laughs> I'll ask you about that. Um, okay. So, so while Tillerson was there, it was never clear to me that this sort of, I mean, A, there's the huge budget cuts, which obviously budget cuts at, at, uh, In in a department like the State Department, which doesn't have a lot of huge weapons programs, inevitably means personnel to a great degree. But there was also just leaving positions that nominally still exist unfilled. And I thought at least that a lot of that came from Tillerson. Is that not right? So
0: that's what he's responding to when he says, you know, the White House was so slow and so cumbersome and they've changed people, but it's still bad. Um, You know, this was closer to the beginning of the year, but uh, he was already saying, yeah, it's a problem that we're not filling these positions and it's not my fault. Um, Kind of preparing, I think, on some level for the end.
1: Right. And and
0: look, on the budget cuts, he did champion them on the Hill, but also in this conversation we had was already starting to say – mea culpa. I mean, he might not agree with that choice of words. um, But I think if you look at his interview, that's the very clear suggestion. And he even says to me point blank on the record, I was inexperienced. You know, I started defending these cuts in my first months on the job. And I thought that's how you do it. You know, you ask Congress for less money. And obviously, every living Secretary of State is on the record (laughs) in this book. And every single one of them said, yeah, no, that's that's not how it works running a government agency.
1: Right, right. So okay, so so I want to talk about because what he is, Tillerson and Trump, whatever mix of that it is, is the the most extreme current example. But this does not start in the last year; it goes back, really, I guess, till the end of the Cold War and arguably mm-hmm. even 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 before that. So, but before we get to that, tell tell us about your relationship with Richard Holbrook and who he was in the sort of the firmament of. American foreign policy in the latter part of the 20th century. So even in the context
0: of this sort of vast scope we're talking about, that there's this changing role America plays in the world, I, I try to tell the story through the lens of the human drama of kind of the last of the standard bearers of diplomacy and the way their lives were shattered by this trend. And Richard Holbrook was a great example. Um, you know, people ask, well, okay, what's the, the last great example of these larger-than-life diplomats going in and brokering peace. And of course, Richard Holbrook and what he achieved in Bosnia mm-hmm. is one of the great modern examples of that. And I was working for him at a time when he was sent into Afghanistan to try to do the same thing. And I don't think anybody says, oh, Richard Holbrook was going to waltz into Afghanistan and fix the thing. You know, it's called the Graveyard of the Empires for a reason. It's an fractious and intractable kind of situation, um, I saw that firsthand and I talk about those complications. However, expert after expert says in this book, War on Peace... Uh, Look, we sacrificed a period where we really could have gotten the Taliban to the table, which is a concept that has much more acceptance now in the foreign policy establishment, using our period of maximum leverage there when we had troops on the ground. And we not only squandered those opportunities, we at times actively sacrificed and sabotaged chances uh, to talk with the other side. And he died kind of decrying both that fact and the process problems that led to it. The fact that the Afghanistan reviews in the first term of the Obama administration were so overtaken by celebrity generals. Right, right. Well, the
1: McChrystal, all those.
0: Yeah, McChrystal, different... Petraeus, and, and you know, Petraeus is very candid in this book. And a number of senior Obama administration officials actually talk about regretting that. And, and Ben Rhodes, for instance, is in there saying... Um, you know, the Hol- Holbrook situation was regrettable, and we tried to course correct and refocus on
1: diplomacy in the second term. Now, how much of that was that coming out of nine eleven, the idea that you would come to an accommodation of some sort with the Taliban was just a kind of a, a step too far as opposed to being a broader over-reliance on... Military force, as opposed to diplomacy—that's
0: more often than not the argument that's used against diplomacy in these contexts. It was certainly the rationale we were given when we were told you must not ever breathe a word about talks to the Taliban, and it all had to be done in secret. Um, you know, the, the needle has moved on that. People do embrace the reality, like it or or not, that you're never going to win militarily in Afghanistan. Rex Tillerson said this and mm-hmm. got a lot of flack for mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, the only way out of that situation, uh, which will likely look imperfect, but is better than no way out, is some kind of a political settlement. And I think that one of the important lessons of these diplomats and their stories is that talking to the other side doesn't have to be appeasement. It can be if it's done wrong, but it can also be a way of playing hardball and exerting our influence.
1: Now, wasn't wasn't Holbrook... Uh... Involved as a as a young diplomat in the opening to China, am I remembering this correctly? His uh, big stretch of um,
0: you know experiences early in his career as a, a young foreign service officer were in uh, Vietnam. Okay. So one of the parallels I write about a lot in the book is a parallel he saw and was kind of trying to sound the alarm about in his last days. That in both of these situations, you had an intractable situation with guerrilla warfare and a porous border into a safe haven where the enemy could retreat. And in both of these situations, in his view, you had uh, a policy review process overtaken by generals and this constant push for escalation by the military without enough counterbalancing voices. And he actually wrote one of the volumes of the Pentagon Papers mm-hmm. decrying the way the policy process was overly militarized. Right, And then in this bizarre parallelism of history he ended up dying trying to sound the alarm about very similar trends you know these are different conflicts and he talked frankly and i talk frankly about the ways in which they're completely different but those parallels were real and he wasn't heard
1: on either occasion now it, i i guess there's a there's a couple different um a couple different historical arcs here one is the 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 rise of the national security establishment in the aftermath Mm -hmm. of the Second World War. But then there's another one that is really, that comes with the end of the Cold War, where America finds itself the, not just the sole superpower, but in a position where it can basically dictate anything militarily, or at least thought it could. And to a great extent, you know, did not face any real military peer for a couple decades, arguably even today and that that just in in my mind almost doesn't defend it but almost inevitably leads to the decline of of diplomacy when, you know when 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 you when your military power is so great or so imbalanced with everybody else's so let's let's talk about that 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 post cold war part of this what is what's the what is your read on what happens from the early 90s coming forward? So I don't think the coupling of those two trends has to be inevitable.
0: But you're right to say that it is what happened. Mm -hmm. The two were very coupled. Uh, Bill Clinton, in the name of really political messaging, uh, you know, came in with, it's the economy stupid and a turn inward and uh, slashed diplomacy and development spending by 30%. And you can look very clearly at what happened then. That's a, a cut roughly on the order of what Trump came in proposing. Mm-hmm. And at that point, at a point at which the world was reshaping after the Cold War and we needed footholds of power, um, especially in that you know, post-Soviet uh, block of countries that, that you know, we needed relations with, we lost a lot of our outposts. We closed two government agencies, one devoted to information and the other to arms control. Obviously, in retrospect, that was a bad idea, since mm-hmm. those are two of our greatest challenges right um, and it greatly decreased our influence and one of the consequences was that when nine eleven hit we had a state department that was already under and had surrendered a lot of the kind of subject matter expertise that it once
1: commanded w- w- was, um, was, was that part of the whole reinventing government that was it kind of did it come under that because I know was there was a, there was a, a, a big push which a lot of, you know, sort of like right-thinking people thought was great at the time— of you know we're going to consolidate and we're going to cut needless spending and blah, blah blah you know sort of this Sure this... it was tied in with all of the political messaging of you know smaller government and um,
0: particularly you know we're focusing now on the domestic mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know I, to be fair to the arguments of Clinton administration officials Madeline Albright is here answering these kinds of questions in in the book and she says well it was Jesse Helms and it was a Republican Congress and there's some truth to that but if you actually look back at Warren Christopher Clinton Secretary of State at the time, uh, and what he said on the Hill, he was defending these cuts and sounding very much like Rex Tillerson at the hmm. time. Interesting. So I think there are some unlearned lessons of history here. We've seen what it does when we gut
1: our diplomacy, and it's not good. Can you give us a sense of if, okay, so if there was a 30% scale cut in the early 90s, mm-hmm. they're talking about one now. Can you... Can you put that together with, like, workforce and the size of the Foreign Service? Like, what does that mean? Like, can you give us a little more concrete sense of, if, if that happened in the early 90s, what did the Foreign Service look like in by the late 90s versus what it was in the mid-80s? Much diminished. I mean, I have some of the numbers in this book, War on Peace, um, you know,
0: and I and I talk very frankly about how life changed for diplomats—that you know, at the embassy in Beijing, they were, you know, jerry-rigging like barbecues to the top of the building to try <laughs> to get a radio signal. I mean, just crazy. Like the sewers were leaking at embassies, right. and they didn't have the budget to fix them. And um, it, none of these trends are simple or linear either. The Clinton administration, uh, Madeline Albright also correctly points out, tried to refocus on diplomacy, particularly in the second term. Interestingly, the same thing happened with the Obama administration. You know, Ben Rhodes says, yeah, we did have a military uh, dominated Afghanistan review process, but we tried to course correct. And then you ended up with, uh, you know, entrees to Cuba, Mm -hmm. the Iran deal, which I talk about at length in this book, um, uh, the Paris Climate Change Accords. So there does seem to be a bit of a phenomenon. This is also true of the Bush administration. After Iraq, Condi mm-hmm. Rice came in and said, you know, we need more diplomats. And you right. ended up with the six-party talks with North Korea, um, which is another chapter in here. People inevitably realize that it's a disaster to run all your policy and all your implementation of diplomacy and development through the Pentagon. It just doesn't work that well in terms of results. But they they
1: learn that lesson too late. No, let's talk about the other part of this because, because it's not... It, at least from from what I can see, this is at least as much the the growth of the Pentagon as the sort of the recession of of the Department of State. That there was around the time of nine eleven there was a number of articles and I think books about what were then called the Sinks, the which are now I think called combatant command commands. And these are like CENTCOM. There's a general who runs CENTCOM and you have CENTCOM, you have Pacific Command, you know, you have these regional commands mm-hmm. all over the world and there was there uh, there was a lot of discussion about how these sort of you know, you can you get kind of uh, uh cheeky language, you know, kind of regional satraps around the world were not only commanding the US uh, military forces in those areas but we're taking on a lot of what was what used to be sort of mm-hmm. diplomatic functions um, and the whole concept
0: of coin counterinsurgency doctrine which was championed very robustly by Petraeus is actually about that, it's mm-hmm. it's specifically about embedding into communities with a whole lot of
1: troops and having the troops do the diplomacy and development work to an extent. Now, isn't there isn't there with the, the those those combatant commands? Don't they have even though as military they they've they've taken on things that kind of look like sort of you know militarized diplomatic. Uh, personnel within those commands. How does that work? Just walk us, walk us I through mean that. I saw firsthand in Afghanistan
0: and this was part of the genesis of the idea of this book um, how if you wanted to get anything done you had to do it through the military. So I was the little guy at the bottom of the totem pole in charge of dealing with local NGOs these non-governmental organizations and one of Holbrook's I think very good ideas in theory that he was never able to execute fully was that we would work through those local groups more and less through kind of big beltway bandits. Um, and what I found was that, you know, if you want to get a well built in a village, y- you got to do it through the Army Corps of Engineers, because doing it through USAID or state, there's no money. The bureaucracy is broken and nothing moves fast enough. And, you know, you start moving towards a well, and very quickly there's a request for applications from, uh, you know, every big uh as I said, contractor Mm -hmm. um, with massive overhead. And they're going to subcontract three times to get the the guy to build the well. And then they're going to build it wrong because they fly in a guy from a whole other region who has no idea about the the groundwater supply there. And this happened over and over again in Afghanistan. And by contrast, you you have the Commander's Emergency Response Fund um, in both Iraq and Afghanistan. You have all this money flying around Um, They're flush with cash. And you have people who actually have operational capacity because we haven't starved the Pentagon in the way we have the State Department and USAID. Mm -hmm. So it is this vicious cycle of you do everything through the military and inevitably you become a more militarized presence around the world. And, And I think what we're not conscious of, Josh, is over time your ability to do it the way it's supposed to be done, atrophies.
1: Right. So, and and just to, to follow up on that point, you do, because of this cycle, you do build up a lot of institutional capacity within the military. And then kind of even if you are person on the State Department side, you'd almost be a fool to try to do it through the State Department because the capacity has just atrophied to the point it's not going to get done. Right. And,
0: and this is dangerous for a variety of reasons. One of which is, you know, correctly, by design, the Pentagon is oriented around Pentagon interests. And they do at the top level tend to orient themselves around the goal of escalation in various places. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not inherently a problem. Um, it shouldn't be their job to argue against themselves. Right, right. Right. That's why you need the countervailing influence of civilians in the room when policy is made. Right. A- right. And not just any civilians, but experts who understand how to embed these kinds of activities in strategy long term because otherwise you are only living in the short term window of what's going to get you the tactical gains mm-hmm. right now the job of the diplomat is to embed that in okay 10 20 years from now you know development is different from humanitarian assistance or emergency response right. development right. is long term and we are losing
1: that long term perspective are there are there historical analogs that when you were when you were researching this book that you thought about you know, other, uh, I don't want to prejudge the question, but, but, you know, kind of late imperial state structures that had similar. Well, I actually, you know, I talk a lot about
0: the context within American history, Mm -hmm. which is instructive. If you actually look back at the headlines covering the State Department during World War II, they read, literally interchangeably with the headlines about Rex Tillerson. Hmm. There are all of these op-eds, saying. and I go back and I find a bunch of them and and quote them in here. Op-eds saying, you know, we have a broken State Department. The bureaucracy is stultifying. It's not working for us. We're in a time of crisis. We need to reform. And what's interesting, Josh, is that instead of sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, they poured more resources into state. Um, they reshaped it. They built all these new offices and sacrificed some of the old offices to account for the fact that mass media was beginning to rise and all of these changes in the world. Uh, And you ended up with the most fruitful period of diplomatic endeavor, really, in modern history. I mean, Hmm. you have, you know, the creation of NATO, the creation of the UN, the creation of the World Bank, all these structures we still rely on today, driven largely by these, you know, six larger-than-life diplomatic characters, the wise men, who Walter Isaacson wrote that mm-hmm, book about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that was a product of a reform effort. And I think that the lesson of that is, although the situation is dire now, you can pull back from that.
1: Now, President Trump is one, hopefully, sui, ge- you know, <laughs> semi-sui generous, you know, knock wood, who knows. But uh, le- let's assume that... Uh, well, let me, let me put it a little differently. Are there sort of forces, discussions underway that are, I mean, I I can kind of assume that among, uh, you know, foreign policy hands, activists who are kind of uh, aligned with the Democratic Party, that, yeah, they're going to, you know, I expect that, they, that there's discussion about wanting to invest more in diplomacy in the State Department. But that's not going to, you know, as long as it is Lined up that way, it's probably not going to happen. Is is there basically is there any reason to hope that there that that you can have some movement and 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 is there is there support for that that is n- not just allied with, frankly, with the, De- the Democratic Party or or you know people who think that way.
0: Well, there's two sides to this. One is you know there's all these secretaries of state in in this book saying look, this kind of gutting of our diplomatic capacity and particularly of the talent flow into the Foreign Service has a generational impact because you're not just giving up capacity now, you're actually staunching the flow of, you know, the people that are supposed to become the ambassadors 20 years from now. Right, right, right. On the other hand, if you look at those reversals, of course, in earlier administrations, where, for instance, the Obama administration relatively later in the game said, okay, let's try to get some large scale diplomatic accomplishments going. They do yield results. You know, you put a few years into making entrees to the Iranians. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you put a few years into a climate change accord, uh, and you can actually jumpstart real tangible results. Mm-hmm. So uh, I do think that there's a recipe for how you can make diplomacy work. There's precedent for fixing the bureaucracy when it's broken. And I think if you have leadership come in that does care about diplomacy and understands that it's one of our most po- important tools in confronting these crises,
1: um, I, I am optimistic. Now, you said, you, you mentioned how in, in, I guess, Clinton, Bush, Obama, in each case, you had sort of second terms where, where people were more focused on uh, diplomacy. But was that matched by significant either reinvestment or the sort of longer term things where you're building the pipeline of of diplomats in the future, but it seems too short term for that. It's not that cut or dry. Uh, You know,
0: there was sequester and then spending on everything went down. You know, the trend line goes up and down. Um, And that's another lesson, too. You know, this isn't just about needing to pump more money into it. Mm -hmm. Certainly, we need to stop, uh, you know, letting it bleed out financially. But I think far more important than that is just leadership. You know, Rex Tillerson came in and being kind of, you know, an an engineer by training and um, a very kind of type A organized guy, uh, spent millions and millions of dollars hiring outside firms to kind of assess the health of the department. And the results were really bleak, but also really telling that all of these thousands of employees that were surveyed kind of said, there's no leadership here. You know, we don't feel anyone's actually championing what we do or organizing it or directing it towards a goal. And I think that if you have leadership come in and, and survey the crises we're involved in and set up units devoted to, okay, here are the experts and here's how they're going to guide our intervention here, mm-hmm. you can have results like, for instance, the Iran deal, which I just mentioned.
1: Now, when, when there were lots of headlines about you know Tillerson bringing in—I don't know if it was like literally McKinsey, but sort of like McKinsey types, you know, to come in and 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 my sense there was—I believe it was Insignium, Josh. Uh, Insignium. Okay, well I got to keep up on my <laughs> on my global consultancies. It was expensive though. I'm sure it was expensive, but it sounds like what I figured there is you got these people come in and 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 they say, well, you know, you've got this foreign service thing. Let's get rid of that, and we'll bring in some this contractor. But it sounds like some of the some of the the studies. Uh, they may have spent a lot of money, but they may have revealed what some of the problem was, or am I misinterpreting that?
0: Kind of. I mean, it reads like a kind of a a fatal prognosis, and (laughs) it was unclear that that message was uh, welcome or listened to. It was sort of quickly swept under the rug. I don't think that there's necessarily a problem with bringing in an outside firm to do a survey, Uh, it's what you do with that. That's the problem. And obviously, given that Tillerson was then unceremoniously fired before anything could be done, uh, it looks pretty bad that he spent all this money on that. And it was for naught. Right, right. But but by the way, on your point about privatization, that's already happening. And that's yet another consequence of the disempowerment of the Foreign Service. If you look at any office in the State Department, there's, over the years, more and more contractors, you know, playing the the roles that really government employees are supposed to. Um, and that's often not cost effective. I don't think anyone's proposing that you should get rid of all of the contractors uh, wholesale, but I do think it speaks to yet another repercussion of an
1: agency not working. How does that, because there's been something, there's been a lot of that on the Pentagon side, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's, so how is that figured into the mix on the State Department side? It's just a widespread phenomenon. You
0: know, I saw it a lot firsthand. Some of that is a good thing. It's a way of bringing in outside experts, which unfortunately, the Foreign Service has been bleeding out and USAID hasn't been bleeding out for some time. So you know, if you're running an office at the State Department, you can bring in a subject matter expert, an academic on North Korea, something like that. There's actually, you know, special categories of contracts to bring in those experts. Um, but it's a it's a band-aid, mm-hmm. you know. The the real problem here is we have not been tending to or respecting or empowering our government diplomats.
1: Now, is there for – what is the we, – we've sort of uh, come at it from different directions here. But what is – From where we stand now, uh, one year plus in the Trump into the Trump administration, which is something of indeterminate uh, (laughs) duration. How do we? I'm sure you're really feeling that. (laughs) Yes. Well, yeah. Believe me, uh, in many, in many, many ways, it's been good for you. You've been doing excellent Uh, reporting. Yeah. Well, it's it's (laughs) make lemonade cuts both ways. Yeah. Exactly. Um, What is the prescription going forward? And and not just blue sky, but a little blue sky, like what, how can the country m- move forward? Because as you said, this is something that goes back, certainly, uh, to the end of the Cold War, and in a sense, goes back long before that.
0: So war on peace is bookended with the stories of diplomats who have been fired during the purge of the State Department under Trump. And, and, You know, on a human level, you're shattering people who have bravely served this country, often for decades. Um, And on a policy level, you're bleeding out our capacity on the most important uh, areas of expertise uh, that we need to be relying on now. So, you know, I talk about Tom Countryman, who was the top State Department official on arms control and was unceremoniously given the boot in the first days of the Trump administration. Um, And I think if you talk to those people and listen to them and understand the critical importance of their work. What you see is again just the need for leadership. And if uh, leadership comes to the state department that really incisively assesses, okay, how can we empower this organization and reshape it to use it as a frontline tool in our greatest challenges around the world? I think all of those people have tremendous
1: hope that we can reverse course on this before it's too late. Or any I've wondered about this b- before. Is it, is it not realistic that any of those people could be brought back, or is that just not how it works? I mean, for a lot of these people, sadly,
0: you know, that window may have closed. Someone like Tom Countryman was, you know, serving our country for decades, and you know, now I don't know that there's another career for him. But for plenty of other young Foreign Service officers, and I tell some of their stories too, um... You can still save their careers and put them to use doing what they have endured danger and low pay to try to do, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, to empower them and give them a mission. That option is still there. Got it. Let me it, jump
2: in, in with just like a process question. Correct me if I'm wrong. I remember on the Steve Cornacki podcast, the like East Village Bar one. You previewed this book a few years ago, right? Wow, good That's a deep memory! Holy and, um, moly,
0: what was it called? A drink, a drinky discourse?
2: Yeah, something like that. So you you <laughs> talk
0: boozy banter?
2: Yeah, some yeah exactly. I beers or booze or bars or something was in the title. You were talking about this book then. Obviously, you've had a busy about a year. <laughs> Tell me just about your process. Are you up at five in the morning? Are you are you writing? Tell us just sort of how you juggle producing this book. And the reporting that you've done in recent it, months—it's
0: very kind of you to optimistically assume that I have some <laughs> kind of a process. Um, my process is flying by the seat of my pants, um, with a, a complete lack of any organization. Uh, you know, I was in uh, really the fight of a lifetime trying to get the Weinstein story out, right. and
1: uh, by how the, far back did that go in your reporting? Uh, it would have been
0: right around the election, so we're talking about you know, almost November, year. yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, and it was a long and exhausting and uh, at times frightening year, and so because of that, uh, you know, at the end there was a period where I literally was, you know, at the New Yorker at One World Trade until two a.m. I'd, I'd file a draft of one of those stories, and then I'd go home and I'd get on my laptop and I'd type and type and type until my fingers were you <laughs> know nearly bleeding, and I'd try to get a draft off of a chapter of War on Peace. Um, and so, thank God for good editors on all sides for <laughs> saving me from myself, and uh, thank God for the culture that embraced these stories when they finally came out. Um, now,
1: there's a there's a PhD in the mix
0: here. What wow, is, you guys are good. <laughs> you do your homework. Yes, shout out to my supervisors at Oxford. Now, is it's, is it's this, due in the is, fall? <laughs> is it is it tied to the, like what's the what's the relationship? Yeah, so so there's a section of the book. Uh, about how this trend line echoes in conflicts we're involved in around the world. And that is, uh, you know, a close sibling of the academic research that I've been doing for my long-suffering PhD, uh, which is about uh, the United States relationships and where with is proxy where armies. Oxford. Okay. So I initially started that when I did the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, I'm sorry. That's very annoying. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and, it, you know, it continues. And, and it basically is about kind of classifying the different types of proxy wars we engage in and the costs and benefits and how those get sold to the public and how they really are in terms of human costs Um And a lot of that informed that that part of the book. So kind of related studies, but not like this is a a version of that. A a deeper dive into the kind of the militarization of foreign policy piece of this puzzle.
2: And tell us if you can, I mean, you know, without revealing sources or, or methods, how you start the reporting process on something so complex, whether it's the Weinstein Me Too stories or whether it's this book, when you're kind of at the beginning of a project, where are you starting your reporting? How are you finding the sort of directions to go in i mean you're
0: it's different for these two different types of work in the investigative stories it really is all source driven so you're kind of i literally at the peak of the weinstein reporting had like a like a Board on the wall with push pins and yarn between them and sort of pictures like a, of people least
1: procedural whatever. yeah like yeah, literally yeah, yeah. like yeah. a
0: bad episode of CSI um, <laughs> right. because I was keeping track of all of these puzzle pieces and you know what you would find is uh, I, w- I was very fortunate to have you know an initial few accusers come forward and then one piece of the puzzle led to another. And when it comes to a book like this, you know, there's the added component of a tremendous amount of literature review. So that doesn't all show up directly on the page. But, you know, you wade through like a 100 nonfiction books related to all these different regions I'm talking about. um, And you kind of get a sense of the lay of the land. And then also there's, you know, 100 plus interviews that fed into this. And you're in that sense doing the same thing. You're being Just real, away. Yeah, you're being super annoying, and you're calling everyone and their mother
1: and their brother, and you're presum- begging for interviews. But presumably, a, a a a different conversation about getting the interview. Where where I mean, a, a former diplomat may not ma- may not want to talk to you, but they don't. They're not sitting under like an NDA or. Well,
0: it varies because a lot of the sources whose stories are in War on Peace are also current government employees. And right. so you know, risk risked their jobs yep. mm-hmm. to, yep. to do this, and I'm profoundly grateful to them.
1: So, what is what is your you've 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 won the Pulitzer. Your you, this book is is out. We have it right here in, in in front of us. What's next? They embossed it nicely, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. it even has that little kind of like kind of read it like braille. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's nice. What's next is yeah, what's you next? know,
0: as you know, I've been working on uh, ongoing investigative stories for uh, mm-hmm. the New Yorker. Some of them on uh, the president. And secret payments during the election. Um, I obviously can't say a damn thing about mm-hmm. whatever is coming next, mm-hmm. but uh, you know I'll, I'll keep on reporting for the New Yorker. And I have uh, an HBO series which will be tell kicking off. That. I mean, I will be able to tell
1: you about it when we start developing it. <laughs> have you <laughs> come but, up uh, with it a, name, in a, month? a name for your production company? Remember, we were, we were talking about, we we, we ran yes, into each other, group people having I dinner. Do. And I do. Ha, I have the name this. and I don't want
0: to say it in okay. case someone else
1: scoops it up before okay, I, I, understand. Before I but,
0: register. But you have it now. I have the okay. name. Um, so so that that starts development in a month. I pushed back, you know, this was a deal from the fall, but I, I knew that I had this series of stories I needed to break and the, and the book to roll out. So they very graciously gave me a little extra window. Um, and then, you know, one of the benefits of working in sort of long form and in the premium cable world is, you know, you can let something cook a yeah. little bit longer. Yeah. So we're going to really do this right. And I think in the same way that the goal is to expose the biggest injustices and the biggest hidden truths um, in print But the New Yorker team, this will be an offshoot of that and will involve a similar stature, uh, stature of Investigation.
2: Do you miss being on TV at all, or is is it our way to kind of get back to that medium?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's you know, I'm a TV guy by training. I'm a TV hack. <laughs> I, got, I had there was no universe in
1: which I was going to step away from that. Yeah. Let me ask you. You and and probably a lot of this you can't talk about. There's the this issue of payments during the campaign mm-hmm. is obviously deeply related to the to the. Me Too narrative and everything that has come out of that, but it also has a a separate. There's a separate story there, or at least a distinct story that lines up with the president. Mm-hmm. Line, a lot of different things. What uh, and one of the things I have been very interested in is the way in which, and I suspect this must. I mean, this certainly comes out in the you know for lack of a better word, non-political me-too NDAs, where you have lawyers that are notionally opposing each other, but in fact are colluding with each other against, in some ways, their nominal clients. Is that, Are you... I assume, are you coming across that in the secret payments front? So,
0: I mean, one of the interesting things you said uh, in how you framed that question was, you know, that there's these two different types of stories. And actually, they really flow together Mm -hmm. very naturally. Um, And I I think we were actually in a meeting the other day where someone said, you know, stories plural. There are no plural stories. It's one big story. Right, right. And in a sense, that's, uh, it's uncanny how much truth there is to that because, I, uh, you know, stumbled into and was able to reveal some of those payments partly because Harvey Weinstein was using the National Enquirer in the same way, in a way that was not dissimilar from, from the way, you know, David Pecker, the head of the National Enquirer, was, um, you know, undertaking some of these transactions to the benefit of President Trump. Right, right. So there is a kind of a unified set of tools, a playbook, if you will, Used by a certain echelon of powerful guy Mm -hmm. who wants to silence people.
1: Let me ask you this, and this is something that I've always been, I've never completely understood. We hear a lot about how uh, David Pecker is a friend of the president, you know, so he's going to do him a favor and everything. But he also runs this company, and it has, I I believe, Schwarzenegger is also played in this Mm -hmm. space. It seems inevitable that as much as he's a pal of the president, if you're sitting on a lot of stuff, you kind of own those people. You can, they need to, they need to maintain that relationship. Do you have a sense in in sort of looking across this whole terrain, what is the National Enquirer doing here? It doesn't seem like they're not just doing favors. There's a very, like, deeply corrupt, uh, Thing, what's this? What's the story there? Well, and all
0: I can say is what a lot of sources at AMI, the parent company mm-hmm. of the National Enquirer, told me, which is, you know, that they fear uh, that the national security repercussions of this are significant because. In their experience, as you suggested, when the Inquirer has dirt on other celebrities, they've used it for leverage. That's mm-hmm. a term that got used a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, that it is a form of influence where they can shape the way someone behaves. Right. And, you know, if you're dealing with Beyonce, that's you know, cover shoots. Right. If you're dealing with the sitting president of the United States, it's a cause for more concern. So
1: this is actually people in that organization express that concern because they I guess they know what they what their organization is sitting on and and that the I mean it's so it's not it's not uh, maybe Vladimir Putin with the with the P tape it's it's what the National Enquirer has on the press, you know that that may be more you know more a more real and pressing. It, it's, uh, I think, significant and newsworthy on multiple
0: levels. One is, of course, the legality of these payments themselves during an election cycle. Uh, and, you know, in this most recent piece about the alleged love child and the secret payment that we documented around mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I've talked to some legal experts about the election law implications, the the criminal law implications for, for instance, the, the Mueller probe, um, as well as the probe going on in New York. Um, you know, Th- this has real ramifications in the eyes of the law. Uh, and then, you know, the other question is, did this reshape an electoral outcome? You know, there's a real, there's a public policy argument that's laid out in, for instance, Karen McDougal's
1: uh, complaint against AMI. And she's the one who seems to have had a semi-long-term relationship with the president, Right. sold her story to the Inquirer, and then it was a catch and kill thing where it was buried right and a couple of months ago she was gracious enough and i think
0: honestly brave enough to give her first interview um you know for us in the new yorker and uh i think that part of the concern that animated that was this idea that this had distorted an electoral outcome because Mm -hmm. ami's response was oh she's free to talk but that was only true after the election they they amended the agreement to allow her to talk to well, what they called legitimate press, which was open-ended, and she still felt she couldn't, and she said she was being threatened by them behind the scenes. But right. even that nominal defense only applied afterwards. So, to the extent that this was a mission to swing the election, right. it appears to have been quite effective. You know, this stuff s- did stay quiet.
1: So, you're 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 still on that beat, or, or should we assume that that because now we have sort of two and a half examples? We have Stormy Daniels, Karen McDougal, and then this. The, the doorman who yep. had a story, and, and unlike the other case, not really clear his story was even mm-hmm. true. So He's yeah. adamant that it is, but yes, we right.
0: were very careful to say you exactly. know, that we did not conclude that this was
1: a credible claim. Right. So it sounds like there may be more of these that are still to be that your sleuthing may uncover. I
0: cannot say a darn thing
1: about okay. anything that I'm working on, yes. uh, and at any given time I'm working on a variety of things. Got it. All right. I'm going to take that as a yes. Okay. <laughs> never, well, I'm just kidding. Anyway, the book is "War on Peace: The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence." You know, we didn't. We, we we touched on it obliquely, but just so readers know, you worked at the State Department for three or four years, two yeah. or three years. Okay, yeah. around that time. So this is not just a a journalistic enterprise. This is something that you saw. Up close. And you worked with Richard Holbrook and so on and so forth. Even
0: though it is about some of these kind of vast shifts in America's posture, it really is written as a character driven drama. Um, And that's the drama of how this echoed in the lives of all of these brave men and women trying to do the important work of diplomacy and being... uh, uh, sidelined in the process, and it's the drama of what I myself saw. Uh, you know, it's very personal. There's a part of this book that's a memoir too, because it's me watching my boss and mentor die, right, fighting right. this fight. I, I, I remember when that happened. Yeah, he loved the press. He was a, he was definitely a friend of journalists.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that that was how old was he? Was like six, early sixties. Yeah, he no, he was or, or pushing seventy.
0: Okay, like a little but, older than I. Th- but he was, um, I'd have to check on exactly how old he was, but he, but he didn't—he was, he was a, a, extraordinarily a, vibrant. Yeah, and, very robust. Right, and I think of, yeah. everyone had the reaction of it was too soon and he had unfinished work. And as I think I mentioned, some of his last memos are released for the first time in this book and um, it's still hard for me to read those passages. You know, I read the, uh, the Audible audiobook and it was emotional returning to that part of my history because he was, I think, making an important argument uh, and it really did fall on deaf ears. Got it. Ron and Farrell, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Josh. Thanks,
1: guys. All right, well, that was fascinating. Yeah, great you know, conversation. Great conversation, and I, I, you know, as an interviewer, you always sort of wonder, like, all right, you know, do I put this guy in a headlock and say, <laughs> I want, I really want to know if there are more, like, right. secret payments. Yeah. Uh, but clearly it does seem like, like, Ronan is is actively working yeah. on that. I mean, how so, could there not? How could there not be? Yeah, that? yeah. How could there not be? And well, you know, one of the things with the the Cohen Hush contracts, you know, it's almost like if, you know, if you go to a um, if you go to like a stationery store or an Office Max or something like that, they will have you know, kind of like an off the rack will divorce, you know, these right. kind of basic contracts. And clearly, in the in the Donald Trump, uh, Michael Cohen world, you have the off-the-rack <laughs> yeah. sex, hush money contracts. <laughs> I'm not and, sure you find those as staples or... Uh, well, you know, we're moving into the Trump era. so, <laughs> it's, a new so yeah, it's, an, it's a new world. Yeah, it's a new world. What's really been clear in all of those, uh, in all of this reporting is is that they do a lot of these. They do a lot of these. So yeah. It's not surprising if there's if there's going to be more. Let me remind you that this episode of the Josh Marshall Podcast has been brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM.
2: Thanks, David. See you next week, Josh. See you next week.